We're back. As you are no doubt well aware, my dear listener, we frequently go on the road for the production of this program. And that little teaser in the end of the last segment about Disneyland uh, is indeed a prelude to the fact that uh, I'm now recording this in Anaheim. It turns out that Mr. McMillan had not been in Disneyland since 1984. This correspondent had not been in Disneyland since 1983. So we thought we would do some (laughs) on-scene reporting to uh, update this American cultural icon and see what we might learn. We also want to note that Mr. McMillan's daughter has had to suffer, I think, over the years on an occasion or two when we had to sit down and put this show together. She's had to sit out there doing her homework while we were recording and editing, etc. So we thought it would be fitting if she could get a little trip out of, uh, I guess you'd say, an extended um, extended version of Radio Parallax. So we, we thought it might be appropriate uh, to offset some lost moments of childhood to, uh, in the process of augmenting our cultural look at Orange County, um, including Priya, to come and um, see what the magic of Walt Disney has brought forth for her first time. So let's invite Priya McMillan over to the microphone to have a word or two to say about the experience she is having here at Disneyland. Priya, are you having a good time? Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool and fun. And uh, what have you enjoyed the most so far? I think my favorite ride so far has been the Space Mountain, and I won't give too much away be- for all those people who haven't been to Disneyland yet. If there are any such people. <laughs> what, uh, what has surprised you the most about uh, Disneyland? I didn't think that there would be as many kind of bigger rides. I thought that they would be kind of small, smaller, more little kid friendly than Peter Pan rides and it's like Pirates, the Pirates of the Caribbean, things like that. Yeah. And and were you able to tolerate It's a Small World? Well, the Small World, the Christmas version, wasn't as bad as well. I don't know personally, but because I've never been, it's the Christmas version. But the Christmas version, they had the high pitched voices also singing Christmas songs, not just It's a Small World. After all, so I wasn't singing it constantly afterwards. All right, Priya. Well, I know you're going to spend a couple more days down there and see more sights. Maybe you can give us a fuller report next week. Sure. You know, she's a very polite girl because she was didn't want to allude to the fact that um, this correspondent refused to go on to It's a Small World because, well, I just didn't want that song in my head for the next six weeks. I'd also like to note that um, I think Mr. McMillan and I would both agree, not being 11-year-olds, that Space Mountain might not be the thing you want to start off with. As a child, this correspondent had a tendency toward motion sickness, and I was reminded of that upon entering Space Mountain to find that it's a lot darker inside than it used to be, certainly as I recall, and as Mr. McMillan recalls, therefore being jostled around and tossed at a high rate of speed, backwards and forwards and up and down, when you don't have any visual references. Well, I don't want to belabor the point that I I think it may not be the best idea, but I do note that when the ride ended for the first and only time in my life, I was in a cold sweat. Are you with me on this, Mr. McMillan? Well, I wasn't in a cold sweat, but I think I probably would have preferred it to be maybe the third ride in rather than uh, just getting up and heading over there to uh, the happiest place on earth. But uh, I'm glad I went. We'll have to take this up with the tour guide. And speaking of tour guides, uh, acting as our auxiliary tour guide for this venture down below the Tehachapis was someone we've had on this program before, Chief Petty Officer Jane X. 
We had a most entertaining talk with her a couple years ago about uh, a job she had while in the United States uh, Navy, which was tracking Russian submarines. I speculated on last week's show that uh, that author Tom Clancy, he of The Hunt for Red October, may have had some friends in high places. Uh, our resident expert in the matter of tracking Russian submarines uh, expressed somewhat a somewhat different view on this. She said that he got a couple things so wrong that she didn't think he had help from people in the armed forces, but rather, as he claimed he did, gathered his information from public sources. Although I still entertain the possibility that someone helped put the Hunt for Red October in front of Ronald Reagan so that when he commented upon it, uh, the book was you know almost assured to be coming, if not a bestseller, certainly a, a good seller, for lack of a better term. But uh, no, his whole career was launched by Ronald Reagan complimenting the book. But according to our expert, Clancy really got some things notably wrong, uh, in particular the fact that he had people listening, uh, sonar operators listening to what was going on when she pointed out that the data that they checked in order to track the subs that the Soviets had patrolling the oceans was translated into the visual. So you could look down at a glance and tell where your sub was. We'll have to ever come back on the program and elaborate on this a little bit, but it was it was pretty interesting. She also mentioned that uh, that although she heard a great deal about the Alpha class of uh, Soviet submarine, they all talked about the Alphas being here and the Alphas being there. I guess I I, I, I imagine these were attack subs. She said that um, well uh, we never saw one. I also speculated a bit about the fact that um, the Soviets with great fanfare, launched what was supposedly a very large submarine capable of launching a lot of missiles. It was called the Typhoon class. And she said that people in the Navy thought it was a little suspicious that the Russians launched this thing basically with a press conference. She said, you know, the U.S. Navy was so secretive about putting its secret subs into the ocean that they built pens that allowed them to launch them uh, without any prying eyes being able to see. She said, if you're going to put one one of these typhoons out in the ocean and have everyone, the whole world see it, well, maybe you're doing it just for show. Maybe you really don't have a lot of titanium hold uh, submarines patrolling the seas. Well, I certainly suspect she's on to something with that. And as I say, we'll have to have her come on the program and elaborate. We only have a few minutes left, and I, I want to talk uh, in closing here about something we've mentioned before and we'll mention again. I think what I'm going to do is just quote from a piece in the New York Times that appeared a few days ago from Alan Schwartz. Said Mr. Schwartz, after more than 50 years leading the fight to legitimize attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, Keith Connors could be celebrating. Severe, hyperactive, and impulsive children, once shunned as bad seeds, are now recognized as having a real neurologic problem. Doctors and parents have largely accepted drugs like Adderall and Concerta to temper the traits of classic ADHD, helping youngsters succeed in school and beyond. But Dr. Connors did not feel triumphant this fall as he addressed a group of fellow ADHD specialists. He noted that recent data from the Center for Disease Control showed that the diagnosis had been made in 15% of high school age children, and the number of children on medication for the disorder has soared to 3.5 million from 600,000 in 1990. He questioned the rising rates of diagnosis and called them a national disaster 
of dangerous proportions. It's pretty much the language we've used on Radio Parallax to describe this massive overdiagnosis taking place, and we're glad to hear someone like Keith Connors coming around. Said he, The numbers make it look like an epidemic. Well, it's not. It's preposterous. This is a concoction to justify the giving out of medication at unprecedented and unjustifiable levels. The piece notes that many doctors have portrayed the medications as benign, quote, safer than aspirin, unquote, according to some. Well, many of these drugs are amphetamine, pure and simple. And to have hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of our youth on amphetamines, when in many cases they simply, absolutely, should I say, don't need it, is scary. This is a topic worth going off on, I think, at great length, but... um, not today. Like I said, we're, we're short on time. We will, in the course of future discussions, be referring to this excellent New York Times article, which I highly recommend, dear listener, that you look up and read. They note in it that a PowerPoint document which they obtained asserted that these stimulants used to treat ADHD were not, quote, drugs of abuse, quote, unquote, this is from the pharmaceutical people, because people who overdose, quote, feel nothing or feel bad. Yet, the Times note, these drugs are classified by the government among the most abusable substances in medicine. And in fact, overdosing can cause severe heart problems and psychotic behavior. All right, enough said for today. Last thing I want to note is that this program needs to go on the road a little more often, which uh, we're going to do, I think, in 2014. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. Possibly the high point of the dozen years that we've been producing Radio Parallax might be the time that we took a microphone down to Los Angeles to interview the immortal Norman Corwin, a legend of radio. One of our Los Angeles correspondents, Don Rose, was not able to make the trip down to Orange County to join this particular expedition, but he did call me last week to ask, are you aware of the fact that on the Norman Corwin that on the Norman Corwin official website, the interview you did with Radio Parallax is smack dab in the middle of it. He said, no, I did not, but I am delighted to hear it. That show, by the way, like I think something like 500 others, is available on our website, radioparallax.com. I don't know if it's our finest effort, but it's right up there. So if you never heard it, dear listener, please check it out. I think when we bring uh, Priya back on the program to talk about her experience down in the Magic Kingdom, I'll have to try and reflect myself on having visited it when it was a few years old, back in the late 1950s, and uh, thinking at age, I guess I was five, that Disneyland must be just the coolest thing on earth. We've all grown up with uh, Disney's movies, you know, dating back to the 1930s, wonderful things like uh, Snow White. Fantasia, Peter Pan, Pinocchio, etc., etc. He also had a wonderful television program that ran for, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, by the time I went to see Disneyland when I was five, I'd seen Frontierland, Adventureland, all these things on Walt Disney's program. And of course, there was the Mickey Mouse Club. I must confess it doesn't have quite the same impact 50 years later, but it is still an interesting place to be sure. And we'll have more to say about that. Uh, Walt Disney took. Uh, uh, a studio in Hollywood and turned it into, well, what is now, I think, the world's second largest media corporation. I guess Uncle Walt knew a thing or two about 
how to market himself. <laughs> you know, if I'm not mistaken, there's a movie currently out about uh, Walt Disney. He's a worthy topic for discussion. We will return to that. At any rate, we're out of time. Sad to note, this program was produced, this time in Anaheim, by Mr. Edward McMillan. We want to thank our special guest, Priya, and to our tour guides, Melissa, and assistant tour guide, Petty Officer Jane. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I don't know what choice uh, of bumper music Mr. Millen's going to go with to close the show, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be It's a Small World. Let's go. Good